Take a network break. The weather's getting cooler, so you can pair a nice hot beverage with your virtual donut and join us as we mine this week's tech news for nuggets of information. We've got stories on switchless networking, Cisco Silicon, Juniper financial results, and more. Response today by Juniper Networks. Appstra, Appstra's intent-based solution, simplifies the deployment, operations, and management of your data center network from day zero through day two, delivers automation and continuous validation of your network in multi-vendor environments. The result is savings on downstream costs and exponentially more value from your network investments. You can find out more at juniper.net slash packet pushers slash appstra. Speaking of appstra, stay tuned after the news. We have a Tech Bytes conversation where we talk to an appstra customer. They're an IT solutions company. They're using appstra internally to run their own data center network as well as a hosting environment for their customers. And that episode is sponsored by appstra. So if you're curious about what it's like in the real world, take a listen. It's a good story because this person yeah. uh, actually went out and ran other intent-based networking products from other companies. And uh, the company mandated that he went with Abstra and he found it absolutely delightful. And th there was a lot more that happened off the air than happened on the air. <laughs> and he was sort of saying how this just worked, where a lot of the other ones were just so painful to use. He's actually quite pleased that he doesn't have to support them anymore. It was amusing, amusing, I thought. Yes, it was interesting. Yes, take a listen. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, we have our human infrastructure newsletter. It's got links to community blogs, instructional videos, essays, and a laugh or two. It's free to sign up at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And that URL will also show you every back issue we've ever made if you're curious about checking it out. All right, let's jump into the news. A company called Rockport Networks has announced a new product for switchless data center networking. That's right, data center networking without a switch. They're targeting high-performance computing and AI and ML workloads that are extremely latency sensitive. Rockport says it offers a 300 gigabit per second fabric with its solution. So I'll just give me a second to describe it to you. It's essentially a PCIe card. You install it in each of your servers in your HPC cluster. Then each PCIe card gets wired to what Rockport calls a shuffle. This is an optical internet, basically acts as a high-speed patch panel. Uh, and then each PCIe card is running Rockport's network OS called RNOS, and that uses uh, customized ISIS to discover neighbors, create a mesh network, and offer multiple paths from server to server. Yeah, this is a, a really off-the-wall solution. And the reason that I think this is worth talking about is because I learn a lot from uh, uh, from products like this about networking and how to think differently about networking. Right. So at, at least from this point of view, I encourage you to sort of have a quick look, um, although I must say their website leaves a lot to be decided. They don't explain their technology at all well in anything that I've seen. And I had to do a lot of thinking and poking and stuff to get any answers out of this. But anyway, so the story here is that IP routing has become the dominant networking technology and Ethernet is effectively deprecated. Although we talk a lot about fabric Ethernet, it's really IP fabrics going forward. We don't do Ethernet end-to-end -end like we did five to ten years ago. Now it's an IP routing fabric over an ECMP. And their point there is, is that is incredibly latent. See, latent process. It is very slow transmitting Ethernet packets from you know, across multiple hops, even in a simple ECMP, it's out of the out of the nick three hop. You know, one, two, three hops on the shortest possible path, mm. and then you have a range of issues around buffering and overloading. So what they've done is they're using a DPU, basically a smart nick with some fancy features on it, and they've connected a twelve core fiber optic interface, which is a standard connector, and then they're connecting all twelve cores to passive optical switch. So it's unpowered, standard PON type uh, component, pretty much off the shelf, I would imagine. And then what they do is they use the DPU to decide which of the other 12 servers in the fabric, I'm pretty sure this is where the, the performance comes from, 300 gig fabric, they're going to route the traffic to. Is that basically right? Because you took the briefing, I wasn't able to make it. 
Yeah, that's basically right. Yes. Um, as I mentioned, they're using ISIS to figure out the path through the network, but because it's a passive optical, you can essentially create eight different pathways to get to each of the 12 nodes you're interconnected to. That's right. So effectively, you're just directly connecting a bunch of servers together. Right. Yeah, there's no intermediary switch, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, over a passive optical network, right. which is, you know, we already use GPON and PON for residential networks on the same basic idea. So this is that. So if you're going to make a product like that, it's not going to be an at-scale data center. I don't think they can even scale beyond one switch. Is that right? One shuffle. No, they can. I asked about that. They can interconnect shuffle. So you can go from rack to rack. Um, you have to connect a shuffle to a shuffle. So, But yes, they, they did anticipate that issue. All right. That sounds a bit, because then you're not going to get uh, direct bandwidth from end to end. You're going to have contention for the optical paths. So that would, there's questions I would ask after that. But anyway, the point is DPU-centric solution that uses an FPGA. It's not an ASIC which suggests they're still in the early days. Most times when you build something like this, you start with an FPGA, which is a programmable array. And then as your solution matures, eventually you commit to building an ASIC so that you actually have the, the maximum performance and the cheaper cost. F FPGAs are expensive to develop, uh, more expensive to maintain because they're all software driven than an ASIC. And at some point you get to the point. But right now, if FPGA driven SmartNIC, which is fine, um, and it's probably worth saying that if you're building a HPC solution, you're running a smart NIC of some sort anyway to accelerate the I.O. You're wanting to do storage at high, very high data rates. You're wanting to transfer data at very low latency rates and you use a, some sort of smart NIC. So most people in the HPC networking aren't using the onboard Ethernet at all. They just turn it off and fit a smart NIC to it to get the extra performance and the high speed. It's not uncommon for a HPC to have dual 25s, dual 50s or dual 100 gigs just so they can read and write to the storage at speed. So very different from normal compute. One of the things I liked about this was that your rollback isn't too painful. Take the nick out, throw the whole thing in the bin, and it's and you're back to using your service. Right? <laughs> That's true. Um, yes, if you decide you don't like it. Uh, and we should know. Yeah, it's not like, you know, last week we talked about Pensando and their custom DPU inside the switch. Right. Well, if you didn't like it, you're stuck with it, right? You can't undo and you're stuck with a switch that's got this extra hardware, which probably needs a custom operating system and blah, 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 operating, you know, all that stuff. So you probably want to stay away from that. Yeah. And to be clear, um, they're not necessarily going after the traditional enterprise data center. They are very highly focused on essentially supercomputing operations, high performance clusters where mm. congestion and latency could take make a workload take longer. And these organizations with these uh, HPC clusters want to get as many workloads running and, and have those jobs complete as quickly as possible. So the faster you can make that happen, the better off they are. So it's, a, it's very much a niche product, I think, but they've come up with an interesting design to hmm. solve problems of latency and congestion. Yeah, I, I would be, you know, there are definitely a market for this. If you're an enterprise and you're looking to do a high, HPC, high-performance compute environment in the corner and it's going to take five to 10 servers, this makes sense. You don't want to be using your Ethernet for that data. It's going to saturate your backbone. If you've got traditional switches that are, you know, middle middle cost switches, they're just not going to handle the volumes of data that HPC throws around. You're going to have the switches will die, the buffers will be overrun, sustained loading will cause your backbone to collapse, all sorts of problems. This is actually, explaining that to people is very hard until you've been through it. Um, but this makes sense. And uh, yeah, and like I said, getting into this and just giving you a different way to think about fabrics is a really interesting idea. Yeah, just to round it off, they haven't 
you know, they're not doing some strange overlay. It's Ethernet. Uh, the one thing they're doing is taking the Ethernet frames and chopping them up into smaller chunks and putting their own head around them to get them, mm. you know, to find the best path through the network. But it's Ethernet. It's ISIS. They've done some modification of that routing protocol to optimize for that. Yeah, network. they're probably using P4 to create their own frames and doing some custom handling. And that's what InfiniBand does. So mm. if, if anybody out there is going like, smells like InfiniBand, I'm like, yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> <laughs> smells a lot like InfiniBand. Okay. Um, and a lot of people who do InfiniBand actually know nothing about the network because InfiniBand literally creates static um, high bandwidth, low latency paths from end to end. And I've worked with high HPC customers who have no comprehension of where, how Ethernet works because they've always done InfiniBand and it just works. So, yeah. Yeah, they're using uh, actually Mellanox drivers on the card. So it is Ethernet uh, at the base. All right. So um, uh, we've got a link in the show notes to the announcement. I'm hoping to maybe write something up with a little bit more detail and maybe some other links to white papers and stuff or data sheets if you're interested. But maybe we can post the briefing doc for people to look at. Oh, yeah, I guess we could do that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So keep an eye out if you're interested. In it. We just thought it was interesting and wanted to call it out. But we will move on. Mm. Uh, Cisco's announced new custom ASICs. It's in its Cisco Silicon One portfolio. This is the P100. This new routing ASIC offers up to 19.2 terabits per second throughput and can be used in both fixed form factor and modular equipment. Yeah, this feels like a low key announcement to me, Drew. It didn't feel like Cisco was, you know, putting on the on the top hat and tails and doing a big launch around this with big press announcements and analyst engagement. This felt like an iterative, an evolution, because um, we know from other ASIC makers that you ship the small, the baby versions first, mm. then you get them into the market, you get the, some feedback from the market on the design, whether the features are right, you find the bugs and you fix them in software nine times out of ten. And then once you get that fixed and you start ramping up your production volumes and you start getting the yield in the fab, and then you actually ship the final version, the high-speed version that you actually planned to ship five years ago. So this is exactly the same path here, I think. Cisco's evolved with the P100 chip. Now, this is not an a switching ASIC. This is a routing ASIC. Cisco wants to pitch this as being in its uh, high-end routers and its high-end modular chassis. So if you're a normal enterprise, this is of no interest to you whatsoever. Uh, because Cisco is only going to sell this in its high-end switch, high-end products, which are, as we know, Cisco likes to have to focus on its high-end. It's not so interested in the everyday enterprise these days. It's much more about the big end of town, small number of sales, big money. That's what it's more looking for. Right. Do you see anything in there that I didn't see? I, I mean, Cisco announced the Silicon One line back in 2019, and that's when they made you know a lot mm -hmm. of noise and fuss about it, like Cisco getting back to its roots of custom silicon and super innovation and development. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that this is just you know now that they've got that up and mm -hmm. running, they're they're churning out new varieties of the ASIC. The, the thing I don't think anybody cares about custom silicon anymore. I don't think it's a. Is it a differentiator? Do Do you think? What they're saying is, you know, particularly on the fixed router size, uh, with this ASIC, you can get a box with 24 800 gig ports or 48 uh, 400 gig ports on one ASIC instead of having to do it across multiple ASICs. So that's, you know, cheaper power, cheaper cooling, smaller form factor. So if yeah, you're you know, a service really. provider or telco, <laughs> that, that could be yeah, when they, significant for you. When, when an ASIC person talks about power savings, <laughs> a bigger chip has more ports and faster throughput. So... As long as you use the extra ports and the extra speed, then yeah, you get power savings, right? But if you buy a 100 gig switch and run it at 10 gigs, you actually don't get any power savings at all or cooling or space savings. Mm -hmm. um, so there, it doesn't, 
I'm always tempering those sorts of claims with a sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing too is that you do get speed improvement because, but mostly not because the chip is clocking faster or forwarding packets at a better way. It's the same chip ultimately internally, but it comes from collapsing the layers. So if you had a two tier leaf spine before, now you could probably collapse it into one switch because it's got twice the capacity or four times the capacity, right? Mm -hmm. And removing hops removes latency, faster clock rates internally means less buffering and yeah, yeah, faster. But it's not, there's no innovation here. This is iteration. I mean, yeah, I guess I would agree. Um, But back to your point about does anyone still use custom silicon? I mean, Cisco revived its line. Juniper's still making custom silicon. Again, it's for the higher end market. So they Mm. they do think there's an appetite for this. Yeah, they keep trying to say that you know off-the-shelf silicon doesn't work for high-end routers. Uh, apparently, customers still believe that. So you know, there maybe there's something to that story. Yeah, uh, links in the show notes to the two blogs they put out about it. If you want more details, uh, we're going to stay with Cisco. The company announced it's providing the networking and video conferencing technology for the UN climate meetings being held in Glasgow, Scotland next week. That's going to bring together world leaders for climate negotiations. Cisco says it's providing the networking services for the in-person attendees, and virtual attendees will be using Cisco WebEx. Lucky them. Well, now, first of all, on behalf of all Scottish people in our audience, it's Glasgow or Glasgow, depending on whether you're genuine Scottish or English Scottish, but Glasgow, not Glasgow, uh, just for that. Um, I think this is kind of interesting. There's two ways to look at this. If you believe that big companies will actually do something for climate change, then this will be appealing to you because Cisco is taking action to follow its previous statements about um Uh, safety and sustainability and being a good citizen in a global society. So, you know, we've seen Cisco make a number of do-good announcements over the last year or so. Most of them aren't worth talking about. But if you're a more cynical, sort of more of a disbelieving type, you might be asking why Cisco is wasting time and resources at the COP. And uh, my perspective here would be that Cisco sees itself as a brand, not as a technology company so much now. And it very much wants people to be um, taking on the idea that Cisco is a platform company that has everything that you need and its 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 portfolio of products is is the you're part of the family type thing, right? And so Cisco participating in these types of things gets to say, well, we're doing good, and it puts us on par. I see this as Cisco punching up. It's trying to say, like, hey, we're a global technology player too. Like, you, you know Apple and you know Google and and Facebook, but we're one of them too. We really want to be a part. So sort of punching up and trying to say, like, don't forget us type sort of thing. Yeah, I guess I I don't feel like this is Cisco trying to polish its green cred, whatever green cred it has. It's more, seemed to me more like a flex, like there's this huge, you know, multi-government giant climate conversation going on and hey, they chose Cisco uh, as the networking and virtual conference platform. Look at us, we Mm -hmm. are awesome and we can support sensitive government Mm work. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other side way to look at this is that, you know, inside of Cisco, they've got an enterprise sustainability and responsibility team, and they have to do something to show that their value. So congrats to them. Yeah. Um, Cisco also happened to mention uh, that they have a specific legislate for WebEx offering. This is a WebEx platform designed for government legislatures. uh, So things like it's got purpose built capabilities around voting, conducting hearings, uh, lots of work on ID and access management, supporting remote attendance by legislators. So, yeah, to me, this is, again, more of an advertising uh, move by Mm. Cisco to say, hey, WebEx isn't just for business. (laughs) It's also for your government. Yeah, and that's why I was saying there's two sides to look at this. Uh, they're angling it mostly as an, you know, they're participating in, you know, addressing climate change, but on the other hand, a good marketing exercise to key stakeholders as well. So maybe both sides are viable. Yeah, maybe. 
Uh, moving on, VMware has announced a partnership with the Amazon-owned Aero. Aero provides home Wi-Fi mesh networking devices, and under the partnership, businesses can provide their remote working employees with Aero devices for home Wi-Fi and then use VMware's SD-WAN and SASE services to prioritize and secure your business-related applications. This just feels weird. Like, Aero is very much a consumer-grade type product, so this doesn't really pass the my test of reasonableness. You know, if I when you hear something, does that feel reasonable and um, I can't shake the feeling that VMware is integrating a consumer level product into its enterprise IT portfolio or its service provider portfolio because VMware is very much splitting into two business units now. One's telco centric and another one is enterprise centric. And why would it use Eero to add Wi-Fi? Why is it not using the existing hardware capabilities of its Cloud product for SD-WAN and SASE? Why not use that? And so it seems a bit odd to me to start saying Eero is at the edge of my network. What do you think? Uh, I actually think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, VMware can you know, raise the typical FUD about distributed work and make nervous executives uh, pick up on the SASE solution while also um, selling them a Wi-Fi mesh network. Um, I will say Aero, I think, is one of the more popular home Wi-Fi mesh networks. I use it at home. I've had good experience uh -huh. with it. What I don't know is do, when, when I buy the solution, obviously I get the arrows. Do I also need uh, some kind of VMware SD-WAN router at the edge or am I using an agent on the device? Is there a browser extension? That's not clear to me. Yeah. What they do is there must be something going into the code of the Euro in the future where traffic is being sent to the VMware SASE engine for inspection and logging. Right. So somehow the Eero will become a not an SD-WAN, but a tunnel, which just forwards all the traffic into VMware's cloud. And then they'll do all of the security and logging and inspection that you expect it to have for remote work. That's how I understand it. Yeah. Again, yeah, I'm not clear. Is there an SD-WAN router I also have to buy from VMware or are they just doing some kind of tunneling? I'd like more details, but they're focusing more on the high level. Uh, this is, yeah, this is an announcement of a partnership. I thought that there was like a business unit inside of Amazon that said, you know what, VMware is doing something with AWS. wonder if we can lean on them to sell more of our product. And <laughs> VMware sort of went like, well, we better not offend them. Like, you know, because AWS is kind of our buddies and, and we need them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like this kind of feels, could be like that. You know, like Eero is sort of forcing the issue maybe, but you know, whatever. I, I see why you're saying that, but I actually could see VMware executives leaping at the chance to sell uh, their SASE service because they know, uh, you know, lots yeah. of executives are frantic about remote work. We've talked to lots of customers and lots of vendors who are jumping on this bandwagon. So yeah, I think this VMware is like, hell yeah, let's do this. Yeah. I mean, it could work. There's an angle that where it's viable, but you know, I, I guess the other side here is that Eero is making a big deal about its Wi-Fi 6. Uh -huh. And having gigabit performant Wi-Fi, which is pretty pointless when you've got like a 10 meg internet connection. <laughs> right. But, you know, okay. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> a gigabit Wi-Fi doesn't give you a gigabit of internet. And uh, so there is that. And then if you actually send it off into VMware's cloud for inspection, that gets even slower. So there is two sides to that coin, but it is a viable remote working solution. It'd be interesting to see how it works out in the long run. Yeah, distributed work is going to create all kinds of opportunities for interesting partnerships. Mm. 
Right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Juniper Appstra. Their intent-based solution simplifies the deployment, operations, and management of your data center network from day zero through day two. It delivers automation and continuous validation of your network in multi-vendor environments so that you save on downstream costs and add more value from your network investments. Appstra sets up network based on your business requirements. It ensures the network is provisioned accurately and alerts you when deviations occur. The automated validation process can eliminate human errors that lead to security vulnerabilities because of misconfiguration. They also optimize day two operations. They give you enhanced visibility, intent-based analytics, and root cause analytics, so you can identify and resolve issues and dramatically reduce your mean time to resolution. They've also got multi-vendor support, so you get vendor abstraction required to effectively manage a heterogeneous vendor environment. Yet, don't have to worry about the steep learning curve of learning multiple management tools. It eliminates tool pro proliferation and reduces the complexity of deploying the data center equipment. Appster says it provides up to 80% improvements in operational efficiency, 70% improvements in MTTR, and 90% improvements in time to deliver. Customers using Appster include Yahoo, T-Mobile, and Belastic. If you want to find out more, go to juniper.net slash packetpushers slash appstra. That's juniper.net slash packetpushers slash appstra. Back to the news, the US FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has released a report saying that many US ISPs are collecting data about their customers that isn't necessary to provide internet services. And while they aren't directly selling that data, they are monetizing it in other ways. The report also raises concerns about a lack of clarity and the illusion of choice in ISP's privacy practices. Yeah, so, you know, little articles like many ISP in our study areas amass large pools of sensitive customer data. Several ISPs in our study gather and use data in ways consumers do not expect and could cause them harm. Uh, although many ISPs in our study op purport to offer consumers choices, those choices are often illusory. Many ISPs in our study are, can be at least as privacy intrusive as large advertising platforms. That's in the intro. Bam, <laughs> 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 coming out of the gates. So effectively, uh, you're, if you're a US uh, citizen or if you're in the US, the telcos are fundamentally collecting well, what appears to be Facebook-style personal data about you, and even more so because they have your personal details. You've signed up. They have your house address, your credit card, you know, your payment details. They've got your credit history and a whole range of stuff. And there is, you know, various indications that some of that, you know, their ability to put a profile together about you and then sell that to other people on some basis. Now, whether that's sold as classifying users into categories or whatever doesn't, you know, at this point you're hair splitting the argument. They're right. selling your your personal data at some point to advertising platforms um, very intrusively. And we've seen a number of, uh, if you follow security Twitter, cybersecurity Twitter, what they, you know, there was articles this week about the FBI and how it's using this data to track down criminals. So it is that level of capability. So it is worth reading this. Um, the angle here, of course, is that I've always maintained that personal privacy and business privacy go hand in hand, although that doesn't seem to be an issue. If people can buy this, this level of data about your company, they can then make decisions about what to sell you. They're better equipped to sell you stuff than maybe you are to decide whether you don't want something or not. And um, this is why encryption is so important, because this level of pervasive monitoring is getting out of hand. So, yeah, I want to be specific about the kind of information the ISPs are collecting as detailed in the report. Browsing data, television viewing data, real-time location data, the contents of email and search, whether you've got IoT devices in the house and more. So it's it's stuff that can be used to put together a fairly good profile of you. Yeah, the report's mind-bogglingly uh, blunt. 
It's quite blunt. Yeah, it's refreshingly yeah. blunt, frankly. Yeah, and it just says that basically companies are getting away with stuff that the government can't. Like, I don't think European governments would even begin to allow this sort of level of data connection and fingerprinting because keep in mind that a telco, if you've bought the same broadband connection as well as your mobile phone, they're seeing all of your data, right. your mobile data and your home data and, and so on. So. Right. And a lot of the ISPs in the US are part of conglomerates that have other businesses like uh, you know, media businesses, cable businesses, and so on. So they can also share that data within these organizations to, you know, boost their their targeted advertising capabilities so uh so maybe the vmware with the eero thing is relevant because you don't want people fingerprinting your employees data what they're doing yeah yeah maybe if yeah you're getting that encrypted connection maybe that helps i don't know mm. uh in any case the, the report mentions that because of the lack of net neutrality rules in the u.s the fdc and fcc can't really do anything about this so legislation is going to be required by the uh by congress to make anything happen so call your representatives <laughs> it would require your government to make a change in policy yes. for anything to be fixed. Yes. So otherwise, welcome to uh, welcome to what looks like Chinese government <laughs> oversight, <laughs> just by companies. It's the, cor it's the <laughs> corporate of panopticon. The yes. That's it. I think so. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on, uh, Greg. Uh, let's get an update on the supply chain. You got a, a private comment about practices from Cisco and Arista regarding orders and how it relates to supply chain constraints. Yeah, somebody sent me a note that Cisco and Arista are implementing policies that orders can't be cancelled and that equipment cannot be returned due to the supply chain in addition to price increases. Now, we've talked about the price increases. Um, in, in one hand, your instant reaction to this might be to say, how can they stop me from returning equipment I don't want? And I think the answer here is that vendors are actually protecting their stocks from customers who bulk order and then cancel. So if you're a certain type of customer who says, well, I've got a project underway, I tell you what I'll do, I'll get my order in for, you know, a million, two million, 50 million, half a billion worth of products. And if I don't like it, I'll just cancel it. Like if we decide we don't want to get, so we'll just get the order in now. Mm -hmm. Or if the distributors get in and say, well, I want to have, be able to have stock because if I've got stock, then... I can sell it and my competitors can't. So they start placing orders for stock. And then if the distributors start canceling those orders because nobody buys that particular product, Cisco could end up with a warehouse full, you know, and Arista could end up with a warehouse full of product. And then somebody, when I tweeted this out, somebody piped up in my Twitter feed and said, yes, uh, we did have a $2 billion write down when exactly this happened at the last time. There was a supply chain problem. Wow. There was a whole bunch of purchases which were subsequently canceled and we ended up with a warehouse full of products that we couldn't sell. So... Um, that's one side. Now, if you're a customer, you might feel aggrieved that you can't return products that you don't want or whatever. Uh, I think the, ch the challenge here is to be aware of this and plan appropriately. Generally, my advice is to just stop upgrading. Just, you know, if, if this uncertainty is causing you problems and, and, you know, all this supply chain problems, just cancel your upgrades until the business turns around, until the supply chain gets fixed. But yeah, you may not be able to pull out of a project if you want to switch to an alternate solution. Once you go down a particular path, you're locked in and you may be stuck. You may not be able to cancel an order. And even if they can't deliver it to you, you've got no hold or no comeback. You can't just cancel and move to an alternate supplier. So go into a project more slowly than ever before, knowing that this is exactly the solution and knowing that you might be facing six months to two years to get the product on your doorstep. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Juniper's financial results in just a second. And I was looking at the uh, earnings call transcript and, you know, a lot of the questions from the financial analysts were about 
the effect of supply chain on Juniper's margins. And Juniper and I assume other networking vendors are very concerned about protecting those margins, less concerned about protecting their customers. So this is another data point there that you need to be careful in what you're ordering and how you're doing it. Mm. Uh, because the vendors know there's a problem out there, but they're focusing on solving their problem, not your problem. Yeah. Prices are going to rise. We're already seeing inflation in the general economy. They're talking anywhere from 5 to 15%. So prices are going to rise just from inflation, but vendors are also indicating prices in rises in the order of 20 to 30% to shareholders to cover increases in manufacturing costs mm -hmm. and shipping costs and warehousing costs. You know, all that stuff is going to go up. Um, so even if you slow down on a project, you may find that the solution gets, you know, 30% more expensive if you wait too long. So you're caught in a difficult situation. Yep. All right, let's finish up with uh, Juniper Networks and their Q3 2021 financial results. The company had revenues of $1.18 for the quarter, up 4% year over year. Net income was $89 million, down 39% year over year. Of course, supply chain challenges impacted revenue, uh, according to executives at the company. Yeah, I can believe that cash flow is down. I think, imagine that Juniper is spending heavily to get pre-orders into the chain, and that will have an impact on cash flow. So that doesn't surprised me particularly. And they're also investing heavily in the missed AI and software tooling. Mm -hmm. So again, not unreasonable that their cash flows are down uh, before the product's sales start to come in, you know. Um, and compared to other tech companies, Juniper is being punished for this because it's one of the few companies that's actually reporting real problems with managing the supply chain. So if you go and read A10 networks, F5 networks, you know, all the other companies who, uh, the fire, the security companies who've all shipped, they've all reported general revenue increases of 5 to 10%, profit increases of 10 to 20%, and they're not really seeing any problems in the supply chain. And there's Juniper. We've got supply chain problems. We're struggling with cash flow. So that's why Juniper's product. My generous reading of the situation is that Juniper perhaps was in a business transition with new hardware just around the corner. And they were caught at a bad time this, and, you know, their supply chain was in a transition state and that maybe has impacted them more than others. But then I also suspect that Juniper's supply chain is not as good as other companies. So maybe there's two things here. I will say that in the earnings call, CEO Rami Rahim specifically cited Mist and Abstra as bright spots in the enterprise market and that these products are pulling other Juniper products into customer environments, including uh, EX switches, which he said had their highest sales in seven years, thanks to pull through from Mist sales from the uh, wireless side. Yeah, and rightly so. Mist is actually, an, is actually something that no one else has done. Mm -hmm. So compared to Arista and Cisco, which is really the main competitors, and maybe even and Aruba, yes, HPE Aruba, definitely. Um, Mist is a genuine innovation. It's auto, you know, genuine automation that happens itself without you doing things. And it's really, uh, it is unique, I think. They also mentioned, and this stuck out to me because I've always been curious about Juniper's acquisition of 128 Technology, which has a, an interesting approach to SD-WAN. They said uh, that uh, 128 Technology had triple digit growth year over year in their with their SD-WAN product. So well done, I guess. <laughs> Triple digit off a very small basis, not well, necessarily, guess, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but triple digit, I mean, yeah, okay, you're starting from zero, yeah, okay. but triple digit is still pretty so, good. You know, so you've doubled, maybe tripled the amount of sales of, a, of a, an acquisition that no, yeah, you would sort of expect that in the sense that when somebody like Juniper acquires a company that's directly in a market where it should be in, that its salespeople can rush out and sell it to customers. That's, that's kind of expected. That's not a surprise to me, at least anyway. 
And for its outlook for the next year, Juniper is touting a backlog of orders that it says is going to improve growth and profits in 2022, although they still anticipate supply chain issues for next year. That aligns with what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with an Appster customer about their use of Appster's intent-based networking data center automation platform. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Juniper, we talk with a customer of Juniper's Appstra intent-based networking data center software. Our guest is Darko Petrovic. He is principal engineer at Advania Iceland. Advania is an IT solutions company offering managed and professional services and IT infrastructure and integration. Uh, Darko, welcome to the podcast. So what drew your interest to Appster's product? First off, like you said, Advania is uh, working for Advania Managed Service Provider. We are one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in uh, MSP in Iceland. Uh, our main goal going with Abstra was we wanted to automate our data center as much as possible and go away from the traditional layer twos that many data centers are having trouble in the past years. So we were looking at different solutions, vendors, um, uh, even thinking about doing ourselves mm-hmm. with uh, some kind of automation with Ansible. Okay, so you're looking for an automation solution. You maybe investigated a little bit of doing it yourself, but what was there something that about Appster that you thought, oh wait, this is going to go better for us? So um, the first impressions from Appster I had a couple of years ago when I was doing my investigation about uh, similar solutions that are out there, but it it went uh, to the to the side that Appster is way more than and offering way more than other solutions and vendors there just because the level of automation and the, the level that it's, it's doing the provisioning and the, the whole networking bits and pieces that are under the bonnet mm-hmm. it's so easy and it's effortless basically effortless so what you've found is that putting abstra into your managed services network into the underlay of that data center environment has really just reduced the friction about making changes, right? Not even that. The margin of human error is uh-huh. minimal. So right. the, how the Appstra does that is it, it has basically every and each scenario that you can have in your data center. Yeah. And based on your inputs, he's going to calculate, the Appstra will going to calculate, is that feasible or not? If it's feasible, it's going to apply it on your network it's like pre-applying the configuration, the Appstra calculates, is the the links are okay, is the routing okay? And based on all that pre-calculated stuff, it expects some results when you commit that changes. So the human, when it's the engineer, when it's uh, provisioning VLANs, VXLANs, or links, uh, servers, new servers, it's basically four clicks to provision that. So what you're saying is Amstra is actually sanity checking. If you're trying to make a configuration, I want this VLAN here to be connected to this VLAN, but it also needs to connect to this segment of the network. It's actually going to sanity check that everything that you want or you think you want to configure is actually possible. Correct. Even the IPs, the VLANs, it's going to cross-check the VXLANs, the VLANs, it's going to complain if you're using the same VLAN. Or the same IP addresses ranges or, or overlap. Right, yeah. correct. That's that's really cool. What can I ask just for a second here? What because it's obviously you as a managed service provider, you've got a choice of switches and you're probably operating it at a reasonable sort of scale. What sort of switches, physical switches, did you go with? So one of the huge elements that we wanted from our 
fabric is that we don't want to do vendor lock. That's especially important for the larger data centers when they have multiple vendors inside their network and juggling between the, the features, you know. Mm-hmm. So we wanted something that's going to give us the freedom of choice in the future years if we don't mm-hmm. like or we're going to have a bad relationship at that moment with some other vendor. All right, we have an alternative. So it's giving us leverage, basically, in the negotiations for the underlay har- hardware. At this point, we went for the Dell mm-hmm. and, and with their enterprise Sonic uh, distribution. Sonic is based on the FRR. So like the majority of vendors are, I know the VMware also uses it, Facebook. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the, the Sonic is... So Dell ON, Dell's open networking switches with the Sonic uh, distribution that they've got, which is supported, uh, right? Dell supports that. And then yes. you're running Abstra well, on top of that. So you, correct. You've actually well, got, not mm, Abstra on top. Abstra is right. just, let's say, a controller, you know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. the, the operating system is Sonic. The, mm-hmm. the, the Dell itself is shipping. So it, Dell has two flavors of, of operating systems. They have their stock operating system, OS 10 or 9. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is an em- enterprise grade for their operating system that's Sonic. Okay, so you've got Dell Sonic underneath, and you've got some flexibility there because you could either replace the Dell hardware with another open switch running a Sonic. You could replace the Sonic with another OS. But more importantly, Abstra over the top here gives you the freedom to change the hardware underneath. I guess that the idea here is that Abstra is doing the provisioning of the switches for you. You're not um, using the command line or Excel spreadsheets or text files to configure them, right? Nothing, nothing. So mm-hmm. not, it's not just giving you freedom to change the, the hardware, it's you can keep the same topology, same IP, same everything. So everything is the same from your perspective, but the hardware you can swap. Of course, it's not that easy in, uh, in, uh, in the real world in sense you need uh, good planning and migration scenario and everything. But at the bottom line, yeah, it, it's everything that you have, everything that's running right now, you can change and keep the same topology, same layer three configurations when you finish migrating to another vendor. Okay, so I think that's something key to talk about is that what you're getting with Abstra is not just this uh, sanity check, this help with configuration, this automation lever, uh, layer, but you're also essentially ensuring that you've got, uh, you can run a multi-vendor network. That's correct. How are you? Yeah, multiple data centers can be connected seamlessly really seamlessly. I mean, I'm telling this from my experience that I had before with other vendors. I was working before Advani, I was working for a global integrator. So I went through a lot of different products based on the, for the SDN solutions in the data centers. And Abstra is maybe the best choice if you want to go having something nice, easy, uh, and manage, manage, manageable. So it actually works. Because one of the it stories does. I hear a lot is with SDN controllers is that people spend an awful lot of time keeping the controller running or installed or maintained. And they actually don't have a lot of time left over to do other work because you're also running an NSX, you're running a VMware NSX deployment for the second part of the networking. Is there an integration between the two? What's that like with NSX and Abstra working together? So our current uh, uh, network is compromised of 
three different key components. One of them is NSXT. The other one mm-hmm. is the data center fabric that's running on Appstra. And then we have that traditional MPLS core who are into connection with other carriers and customers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's Appstra giving us uh, in, in, in the middle is connectivity between the data centers. We're not touching the MPLS core in that perspective. So we can stretch a VLAN or L3 even through multiple data centers. So any cast gateways also there. And it doesn't even hit the core. So the core is there just a transport network. No configuration there. Right. From the configuration perspective of the NSXT, so Abstra is doing a read-only uh, queries to the NSXT manager, where can you, where you can see all the VMs, the VLANs, the 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 VDSs, the 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 the, the port groups, and based on that, you can map out your Abstra switches, VLANs, uh, the policies, or whatever you want. So you, what you're actually saying there is that you're actually integrating the NSX and the Abstra together. It's not a it's not a, 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 a read-write and everything's coming together and, you know, mystical magic happens. It's Abstra looks at the NSX configuration and knows what's happening in the overlay and can work to help you with that. Is that right? Correct. Hmm. Well, it gives you information. It doesn't do the configuration, actual configuration of the NSXT. That's done no. separately, right? But well, it's done in the, NSX, the, right? Yeah. Right, yep. yeah. But the, everything that you configured there on the net, on the on the, the segments, on the T1s, the T0, T1, everything is visible in Yapstra. I mean, the, the, the VMs to which uh, uh, network adapter is connected, then you can map out that. You can even forbid traffic. Of course, that's also possible in the NSXT, but additional security is available for you on the abstract level. So you can right. So you can actually integrate the micro segmentation policy that you've got from NSX with what's in abstract. It's not that abstract is going to configure the NSX, but it's aware of what the NSX configuration looks like, and you can see it. Yeah, and that means a lot to to a network guys. I mean, mm. to see what's what they're working with. Also, the telemetry of the abstract is fantastic. It's a uh, the telemetry is way better than anything that then you're going to use on your NMS. Mm-hmm. It's a go-to platform for, for your insights on your fabric. You can see there everything from the bandwidth to the errors, to the dropouts, to the notification, to even, mm. app, even the, 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 the microbursts are seen there. So what you're actually saying is your whole underlay is run by Abstra. It's monitoring the cable performance by looking for drops and signal changes on the optical because it actually watches the optical state of the fiber optic connections to see if they're working. Same for copper, slightly different though, depending on the type of operating system and so forth. But if you want to know, uh, you know, is my spine running at capacity? Is there a hot, is there links in the ECMP, uh, you know, leaf spine architecture that are running too hot? You can find out. It's all just part of Abstract. You don't have to go and find another system to match that. That's correct. I don't know for copper, though, because yeah. we don't have anything on copper these days. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, for the fiber, yeah. And the, there is like a really nice graphic on Abstract for your link, you know, for the, for the spine and leaf links. And it's as your throughput go, as your bandwidth goes high, the, the, that visualization, visualization of the, that link goes thicker, you know. Mm-hmm. So... You have all the numbers there running, but yeah, when you see in the visual capacity, what's your 
limits oh, and that's that's really nice and really helpful really yeah because you know where you are you like your mean time to innocence like it's not the network and you can prove it because you can look at everything and go like bandwidth fine interfaces yeah. are up. it even it even draws out your entire topology how your current topology looks like all the links are there between the spines the leaves and the servers everything is there like real lines you know I didn't you didn't have that. to draw it or configure it or, yeah. <laughs> or keep no, it up to no, date. So, I mean, the only thing that, that's needed is when you build out your fabric. So you're going to click and on a lot of stuff, uh, rename a lot of stuff. So that initial setup is a, is a little bit nasty as in never. So that's like mm. mandatory never solution, right. each and every solution. But the nice thing is that it's going, the abstract will going to build out your entire fabric just based on the LLDP. So that's it. You can plug in your, your spine and leaf links to whatever port and don't even put an interface number in abstract. It's going right. to do it by, for, your, for you. And then it's going to draw you out how your topology looks like. So Darko, I wanted to ask, you know, whenever you bring in any kind of automation solution, it can, there's a learning curve. It might disrupt the way people are used to working. Was there any friction with you and the team trying to get used to Appster and this new way of working? Well, it was on my part because when we started testing this on POC, it was version three. We were testing version three. A major Appster gave a lot of changes in version four. So version four is... You'll get a separate, uh, uh, separate sections for co configuring connectivity for external templates, uh, route maps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in that sense, I, me personally, had some. Hey, you were the bottom. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but for the rest of the guys, it was easy because they they don't know anything for, for the for they're, the older they're coming in clean. Right? Yes, uh -huh. they're yeah, coming in yeah. clean. They they're not thinking of all the configuration that's going on under the hood and trying to work out. So, yeah. so the learning curve is not that steep. It does right. have, like I said, with every new solution that you came across, it does have any a little bit hard hard time to get around it. But with this, it's not that hard. So I guess the takeaway is that um, you, you, sort of the intent of my question was like, it sounds like you can get a fairly good time to value, a time to where you're actually using it as opposed to just learning it. Like I said, from my experience with other vendors, and if you ask me now, I would choose AppShop or any other vendor anytime. It's really proven that good for you compared. And you've got experience, like you said, you came from an integrator. So you've well, actually had experiences on other systems and you're pretty happy with this one. Well, the bottom line is you don't need an engineer that's, that knows Cisco, Juniper, I don't know, uh, Dell, uh, Huawei, whatever. You don't need mm. that kind of engineer right now in your data center. You need a not, guy. Not for everyday goes, work. You only need you it when you're making correct. critical changes. Yeah. 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 So you, don't, you, you just need a guy that knows to click with a mouse. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's trivial comparison, but... It, as in a nutshell, it's like that, basically. I mean, When you're running a managed service provider like Advania is, you don't want to have high-quality, highly trained, high-priced engineers doing everyday work. You want to have them doing deep work, like firewall deployments and rollouts and reviews of structural fate, like root cause analysis and that type of stuff. And as a senior, when I was a senior engineer, I spent way too much time doing scope work. Config, yeah, or just configuring VLANs because nobody else could be trusted to do it. And it wasn't Correct. fun, right? 
No, it wasn't. I mean, like I said, AppStore is doing a sanity check for you. So the human error is, well, minimal. It, it, it really is. So you don't have to, I mean, you have to worry about when you get some errors on the fabric itself. And then you're going to need uh, one engineer or senior engineer to teach you that. But apart from that, yeah, it's everyday provisioning and that's it. You just put a good foundations in, in, uh, in, the, in the first go when you build it, when you're building your fabric and just template it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of our conversation. Darko, thanks for joining us. And if uh, you've piqued people's interest in Appster and they want to find out more, they can go to juniper.net slash packet pushers slash Appstra. That's juniper.net slash packet pushers dot Appstra. We'll also have that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Again, Darko, thanks for joining us. And thanks to Juniper for being a sponsor. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. Follow us on Twitter. We're at packet pushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.